Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's turn to John chapter 1. We're going to pick up at verse 19, and let's stand for the reading of God's word. John 1, 19 through 28. This is the word of the Lord. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us, What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not unworthy, I am not worthy to to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we come to this passage that you would bless us with your spirit. That the spirit would do his work through your word preached. I pray that you would give us humble souls before your word and that we would indeed desire the pure spiritual milk of the word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So among the main purposes of the prologue, which was what we finished last time, verses 1 through 18, in the Apostle John's Gospel is this, to proclaim the preexistence of the Son of God, which is to say that he is God. Right beside that theme, the Apostle then teaches us about the human nature of Jesus. Right, That that preexisting, eternal Son of God amazingly took on flesh and made his dwelling among us. And so Jesus was fully God and fully man. These themes, those two themes that I, we, we gather out of this prologue um, will continue through the whole gospel. But we now turn from the blank statements of the facts of Jesus pre-existence and his taking on flesh to the outworking of those realities in his in his life's works right we turn to the action at this point we turn to the life of Christ his work among his people the works of God uh, who lived among us and to eventually shed his blood as a propitiation for the sins of his people now interestingly 
what is lacking in this gospel and most of the other gospels. What is lacking in this gospel is any mention of the first 30 years of Jesus' life. Right, 30 years not, not present in this gospel. This seems especially strange given the fact that Mary would have come into John's household at the, after the crucifixion, after Jesus' um, death and resurrection, right? Remember, as Jesus, Jesus arranged this on the cross, he says to the apostle John, um, woman, behold, or says to Mary, behold your son, and he's saying that to the apostle John. And so Mary would have gone to live with John. It would, have, it would seem that he would have had then ample opportunity to ask to speak with Mary of her son's early years. And it would, would also seem uh, that that would be the question on many people's minds. And it would seem that Mary would, would uh, really like to talk about those years as well. And perhaps John and Mary had those fireside chats but John didn't record any of that for us. And that lack is due to the Spirit's inspiration. Right? It's not a lack. It is, um, it, was, it is not necessary for us to know that. We have a few snapshots of Jesus when he was 12 and, and um, obviously surrounding his birth. But we do not have uh, much information there. And that is by the Spirit's inspiration. So we don't need to regret that it's not there. What we have is enough. So where do we start? We start with the forerunner of the Lord, John the Baptist. We've already spoken about John the Baptist, and now John the Baptist is the focus of this passage. Um, He's now doing his forerunning work. For 30 years, though, think about John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist had known that this was what he was supposed to do. I mean, if he spoke with his father, right? He would know that this was what he was supposed to do. Zechariah, his father, who was a priest, a Levite, made this known to him. In his song at the appearing of the angel to him, Zechariah said this about his son, And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his way. And so John the Baptist was to prepare the way, uh, prepare the people for the, the Messiah's coming and to announce that arrival. Uh, what did John do until that moment should come? I mean, what did he do for the first 30 years of his life? Well, in Luke, we read this. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in the spirit. And he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So he grew in knowledge of the Lord. He grew in the spirit. He matured, right? He matured in faith. He grew in the spirit and lived out in the deserts until he was supposed to make this announcement. Lived in the deserts and the wilderness, clothed in his animal skin, right, and eating locusts. Until that day should come when God called him to public ministry, to a public announcement. John and Jesus undoubtedly spent much time together. They were cousins, right? It would have been clear to John that Jesus was extraordinary. I don't know how anybody could have witnessed his sinlessness, 
and not concluded that he was an extraordinary young man and man. Um, it would have been clear to John because he would have heard about, also he, he would have heard those stories about angel visitations other than his own, um, those visiting Joseph and Mary. And the families would have, would have been sitting, I mean, these, these two families would have been sitting on the edge of their chairs waiting for this time that they all knew so richly about. You wonder if, if during those 30 years they had doubts. And so it was not until John and Jesus had reached their third decade that everything was coming together. There had been times, I mean, there had been a few times when, when uh, Jesus taught the priests in the temple and got left behind in Jerusalem, right? We, we remember that story, but now it was the right time. It was the right time. It was God's time for uh, for John to announce the coming of the Lord. Out from Jerusalem, the Jews then send priests and Levites, these temple officials, to examine John the Baptist. And likely this was a formal deputation from the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was a governing council. It was, a, it was, it was not... It was not the Romans, right? It was an ecclesiastical council. It was the Sanhedrin governed the church of that time, the governing ecclesiastical council, and it was made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, right? And they came out to his dwelling place in the desert and asked him a very simple question, who are you? Now, the commentaries at this point go back... Some go one way, some go the other way. Some say, you know, their motives are clear from the beginning and they're not good. Others, like, like Calvin, he's like, no, nah, their motives are good. They really just, they need information. They want to find out. They, they're doing actual good governing because they want to find out if this dude is, gonna, is off his rocker, right? And they want to protect the church. And so... Um, I have a tendency to, to read their motives as um, probably not, not as good as Calvin. The priests and the Levites would have known who he was as far as his family is concerned, right? He was the son of Zacharias, a priest, a Levite himself. So the question is not some, simply one of identity. They, they did not want to know who he was. They wanted to know what he was up to, Right? The question was more of a what question than a who question. So why did they have this question? Because there had not been a prophet in Israel for centuries. There had not been a prophet in Israel for centuries. Longer than we've been a nation, they were without a prophet. And then here's this guy that, that seems to have the demeanor of, of, and the, the words of a prophet. And um, putting the best possible read on their motives, they had charge over the church and must act as watchmen. They didn't want another sect leader to arise. Of course, their godless ambition in snuffing out sects would also lead them to desire to snuff out the very Messiah for which they were waiting. John's answer makes it clear why and what they were after. He states that he is not the Messiah. Right? Who are you? I'm not the Messiah. 
He gives a bunch of negatives here. I'm not the Messiah. Now look at, at verse 20. It uses the word confessed twice. It reads like he's being interrogated by the FBI and making this confession before them. Well, in a sense, he is. The deputation from the, the Sanhedrin wants to know if he's styling himself as the Messiah. And the use of that word confessed twice makes it clear that he is objecting to the implications of their question and announcing uh, for and announcing his, his view for all to hear. He is in no way, he is in no way and will not make himself out to be the Christ. Right? The thought of that is repugnant to John the Baptist. Already we see the humility of John on display. He's already diminishing, right, so that Christ can increase. And if there's anything we say about John the Baptist, that's it. He has a role, but it's always, I diminish so that Christ might increase. Um, that's a hard spot to be in. That's a difficult place to be. It's hard to play second violin, right? It's hard to be um, in the second seat, and that's where he is. Do we have any less regard of John because he diminished so that Christ would increase? Though I mean, looking at it with the eyes of faith, do we regard him less because he took a second seat and he diminished that Christ would increase? No, not at all. It, it only causes us to love him and respect him and for John the Baptist to be an example to us. So John confesses that he's not the Christ, so the priests and the Levites continue their questions in another direction. They ask him if he's Elijah. Why in the world would they ask him if he's some guy who died a long time ago? Or <laughs> why do they ask him that? Why? Because they know the prophecy, right? They know scripture, at least to a certain extent they know scripture, and they know the prophecy in Malachi, the book of Malachi. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, and he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, <coughs> so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now, there was a weird view um, during this time that Elijah would be reincarnated. I don't know whether it was the Sadducees. It wouldn't have been the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed that Elijah would be reincarnated. And perhaps they're asking for those reasons, and uh, literal, taking a, a literal interpretation of this, right? But it's this prophecy that is applied to John right at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. This is the angel speaking to John the Baptist's father, to Zach Zacharias. Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice in his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Right? So the priests and the Levites ask him, ask John, if, if he's that Elijah. 
that would be a forerunner to the Messiah. And John denies it. John denies it. Now that seems strange, right? He denies it, and yet Jesus has said that he would be the Elijah. The prophecy at the beginning of Luke that was given to his father has said that he would be Elijah that, that comes before, and yet he, he denies it. Then they ask him if he is the prophet which could either be a restatement of the previous, are you Elijah, or he could be pointing to, um, are, you, are you the prophet that was announced by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter, what is it, 15? Right, the one that would come after him. Are you that prophet, that prophet? And he denies that, right? He denies it. Why? Um, well, he is that Elijah. He is that prophet. We read in Matthew eleven nine 9 that Jesus calls John a prophet, yet even more than a prophet. So why is denial here? Luther, um, in his commentary, gives this reason as to why he denies it here. This he did for the sake of the people, in order that they might not accept his testimony as the foretelling of a prophecy, of a prophecy and expect Christ in other future times, but that they might recognize him as a forerunner and guide and follow his guidance to the Lord who was present. In other words, he denied being a prophet because he didn't want, to want people to think that the Messiah was way far away in the future, which is what they expect after 400 years of not hearing from a prophet. The prophets speak and nothing happens. right? And so John here is thinking on his feet. He's saying no so that they would then, so that he, he doesn't put them off. He's saying, no, Christ is here. He's among you. That's what he says in just a few um, verses down. He's among you. He's here. So in other words, John wants to make it clear that he is the ambassador announcing Christ's arrival, not a prophet in the Old Testament sense, foretelling something that lies off in the future. And this then is exactly what John says next. After his denials, the priests and the Levites then ask him, who are you? so that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And so that question makes it clear that they've been sent to report back, right? This is a deputation. It feels like they're um, trying to get to the bottom of this so that they can punish him. Um, what do you say about yourself? Who do you think you are, right? What do you say about yourself? This time John gives an answer, not a denial. Quoting the prophet Isaiah, he says, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Again, it's humble, right? I'm not a prophet. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the Messiah. I'm just a voice. I'm a voice of, of one man crying in the wilderness, and I have one message. It's make straight the ways to the Lord, right? Make straight the way of the Lord. He's been sent just ahead of the Messiah that the people uh, would what? Would make their ways straight, right? Repent, and by repentance, prepare their hearts for Christ to come. John the Baptist is, is just a voice. He's not, a, not the Christ. He announces as an ambassador what is coming, and just as it would be inappropriate not to heed the ambassador's announcement, Right? and leave off preparations for his arrival. So it's wrong for them 
these Pharisees and the Jews to leave off preparing their hearts for the Messiah who has arrived already. And the order of the day was repentance. It was repentance. In Acts 19, the Apostle Paul describes John's ministry this way. John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who is coming after him, that is, in Jesus. Right? This baptism of repentance, calling to repentance. Make, prepare yourself by repenting, of it, just as we would in coming to Jesus at the Lord's table. Right? We go through self-examination. We go through repentance. That baptism of repentance was to prepare their hearts to receive Jesus. So given what was, hap- was coming, God in the flesh, it was only appropriate that they humbled themselves before him. The, the voice of John the Baptist sounded that message. Verse 24 pops in, and we learn that this, this deputation had been sent by the Pharisees. I think that stands in here as a bit of foreshadowing. This is the first entrance of the name of the enemy of Christ, or the enemies of Christ here, the Pharisees. We must remember that the Pharisees were very scrupulous about religious observance. Even if they had to make those observances up, right? They were very scrupulous about those things. They were legalists. They, they do not want this dude to make up some new religious observance away from the things that they have given to the people, right? Away from their authority, right? John is acting perhaps as a rival and they just won't broker any rivals. They will not have competition for their religious observances, The way they've set it up, too, you remember the Pharisees like to pray on street corners so that they might be seen, right? They're like all of our street preachers today who can't preach without broadcasting on Facebook, Um, right? The the Pharisees did that, and and so they were very proud men. They were very proud, but they had things set up so that they would get the glory. They had things set up so that they would get—they also loved money. Pharisees loved money, and so they had things set up so that they would get the YouTube hits, right? And, and, uh, and so that's why they would oppose John the Baptist. They don't want any rivals. They don't want somebody to take away from their glory. Hence their question, why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Now that's a strange question. Why would they expect that Christ or Elijah or the prophet would baptize? Well, it's more, it's more that they are asserting that only certain people had authority to institute certain things, certain rituals, right? Only they had the authority to institute this, this ritual. Um, they are thinking... In other words, who gave you this authority? Who do you think you are that you are doing this religious right away from and despite our authority? And so they're, they're accusing John the Baptist of, of unlawful novelty. He's being novel. He's doing things that they haven't authorized. 
Now, was there baptism before Christ's institution of and and the and the uh, the doing of it in the Christian church? Yes, there was baptism. This would not have thrown off Jews. Um, it probably arose from the Levitical commands concerning washings, right? And along with circumcision, Gentiles who came to faith were washed with water in in a ritual way as well, and that practice. That practice of Gentiles who were converted to Judaism being washed only came about after the Babylonian captivity. So yes, there's baptism that is occurring. And they would not have been surprised that, um, at the ritual that John was performing. John's answer to their question of his authority, well, he simply points now to Christ and away from himself. Fulfilling his role as the forerunner of the Messiah. Points away from himself and to Christ. He doesn't really answer them, but instead continues his work of pointing to to Jesus. I baptize in water, but among you stands one, right? He quickly moves on from the baptism question. I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. What do you mean we don't know it? We Pharisees, we know you, we, we know everybody who's trying to set up their shop in Jerusalem. What do you mean we don't know him? And then he says, it is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Notice that he says this about the priests and Levites. One, he says the Messiah is standing among them. The Messiah is standing among them. Well, why are they not going to him? Right? Why are they coming out to John the Baptist? Why, why are they not thronging to him? Well, they don't know him. That's the second thing it says. They do not know him. These Pharisees, these Levites, these priests don't know Jesus. Right? They've seen the prophecies. They've seen the things that have happened during Jesus' life. They've seen the extraordinary things. They've heard the testimony of Simeon. Right? They've, they've seen all these things, and yet they do not know him. They don't know him. And then third, he is of such authority and stature that John, whatever his calling from God, is not even worthy to untie his sandals. Right? That's the most menial of tasks. The most menial of tasks. It's, it's just... Um, Who is worthy to do that? Uh, right? It's just, um, just absolutely base. And he says, no, I'm not, I'm not even worthy to do that. A slave might do that, but I'm not even worthy to do that. And so that's, that takes us from beginning to end of this text. And shows us what's going on. So some applications coming out of this. What application does this have for us? One, I've got a couple here that I want us to think about. One, live to exalt others. Live to exalt others, not yourself. The best teachers, the best pastors, the best fathers, the best mothers... I have known have been the kind of people who delight when those they teach begin to excel them. 
right? When they, when they go past them. There's a delight, but some people are not capable of that kind of humility. As soon as somebody begins to surpass you, you do all you can to sabotage them, right? And we have to guard our hearts against this. Um, when our friends become successful, right, we, we die inside sometimes. Even friends that we were instrumental in, in their coming to faith or their professional life somehow. John the Baptist had the kind of character that was pleased to be second, right? That was pleased to point toward another and, and was pre- pleased just to sing the praises of somebody else. And so we too should, should rejoice in the godliness, in the successes, in the growth of those under our authority, right? Till they surpass us, till they go way beyond us, hopefully, But jealousy often gets in the way of this. Um, We can even become jealous of our own children. We can become jealous of their marriages. We can become jealous of their jobs, the opportunities they had that we never had, right? The comforts and ease with which they lived. Um, We must be careful not to let our pride from uh, keep us from pouring ourselves into others. So think of John the Baptist, decreased that Christ might increase, pointing toward his cousin, right, pointing toward his cousin who was God incarnate. He saw the whole world go after Christ and then pointed his own disciples to Christ, right? Even his own disciples he pointed toward Christ. Then... He ends his life with his head on a silver platter at the request of an obnoxious teenage girl that sexually aroused her father. That's how he meets his end. It's just such a gruesomely um, ignoble end for such a glorious prophet. As Jesus says, there was no one born of a woman greater than John the Baptist. And he met his end with his head on a platter at a party. I think John was the kind of godly man that actually lives in the here and now and is able to focus more on the treasure to be received in heaven than the recognition to be had now in this life. Right? That's, a, that's another hard mindset. It's hard not to... Um, as you raise your children to, uh, to not want, well, relief at a certain point, but not want accolades for how well you're doing, not realizing that God is witnessing the whole thing, and you will, you will, by your faith and by your effort and by your sweat, obtain treasures in heaven. And we just don't think about that. I, be, I, I think John the Baptist always thought about that. He decreased, he decreased, he decreased. It was all about Jesus. He would have his comforts later. So be the kind of person that delights when other people are blessed and honored. Give up the best seat in the van to an undeserving sibling. John the Baptist would have done that, right? We have assigned seats now, so... (laughs) There is no choice anymore, (laughs) Congratulate a coworker on their promotion above you. 
delight that their talents were recognized and smash the envy of your heart when that happens. Give thanks to God for what position and talents you do have, right? Even if they are not recognized. Give praise to God for those things. Um, most of all, just work to be the kind of person that promotes others. This is, uh, we live in a very narcissistic age, right? We live in the self-promotion age. And so it's very hard to become this kind of person that is pr always promoting others. Mothers are forced into it, and it's good for their souls to be forced into it. They have to die to self. They give up their bodies so that they may have children, right? Stretch marks, bad backs, et cetera, et cetera. And that is them dying for others. That is them becoming second so that their children can become first. And it's glorious. It's beautiful, right? Fruitfulness, fruitfulness. Think about fruitfulness is all about diminishing for the sake of others. <coughs> it really is. It's a choice to diminish and diminish and diminish so that others might increase. And so I honor mothers who are fruitful. It's fathers giving up their income to provide for their children, for others, right? It's decreasing. It's not, not being able to give yourself to the things that you would, not being able to invest like you'd like, but investing rather in the mouths and hearts of those that God has, those real people with souls that God has given to you. Of course, the ultimate example of someone, I mean, we're, we're using John the Baptist as an example, which, you know, all the redemptive historical guys would tell me is foolish sort of preaching. But what do they know? Right? Um, John the Baptist is an example to us. But they'll be pleased when I say this. The ultimate example of someone who points away from himself into another is the Son of God glorifying his Father. There is no higher example of this, right? Complete deference to his father, obeying his father perfectly every time, right? This, and and that, that deference, that him, the son of God diminishing so that the father might increase, if I'm able to say that, is and was and always will be. 1 Corinthians 15, 28 says this, When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself subjected to the Father, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the Father who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all, so that the Father may be all in all. I mean, it's, that's an extraordinary passage. I mean, this is, this is God, the Son who is equal to the Father, right? Submitting himself to the Father because that's what, that's what the Son was meant to do, was to glorify his Father. And so the, the ultimate and eternal example of this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God to God the Father. Another application. If John considered himself unworthy to even untie the thong of Christ's sandals, how should you consider yourself in relation to Christ? If John the Baptist, no one greater, born of a woman, considers himself not to be worthy to untie the thong of his sandal, then how should you consider yourself in relation to Christ?
unworthy to even scrub the dirt from under his toenails, right? Maybe worse than that. We think way too highly of ourselves, don't we? We, we are taught by our cultural elites to do so. We are taught by our education schools at our universities to do so. They tell us we can be whatever we set our minds to. We should follow our heart's desires. We should be, uh, and, and that all of it, we should be, all throughout it, we should be told how good and how precious we all are. And scripture's testimony about man, and more specifically about you, is that you are not worthy of the least bit of Christ's affections. You're not worthy of the least bit, a molecule of Christ's affections. What you are in yourself is a dead, helpless, God-hating, hell-deserving, godless, ungrateful, self-centered worm. And until you recognize that, you, you will be filled with delusions of grandeur. We'll be filled with delusions of grandeur. We should tell this to our children, too. Yeah, you're cute. Yeah, we love you. Yeah, all that. But you're a, you are a wretch, and you need Jesus. You better be telling that to your children, even the cute ones, especially, especially your sister. But until we recognize our, our bankruptcy, our sinfulness, we are not going to have the proper perspective on the distance between us and God, and we will just become, we, we will, in our delusions of grandeur, we'll make gods of ourselves. You will think of yourself as God's colleague, or, or, or worse yet, God's better. And no, 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 we cannot do that. You are terrible and worse than terrible. Every one of you, every one of us. And but for the grace of God, you have earned for yourself hell fire. You've earned for yourself the anger of God. That's what you've earned for yourself. Your salvation, your position before God, your redemption, your cleansing is all and only because God determined to do something with you by his grace and for his glory. That's it. Christian faith is one of absolute self-annihilation. We are nothing except for God's work in us and for us. We repudiate self-esteem, right? We repudiate self-esteem. If you, my thoughts are having thoughts now, and now I'm determining whether I should share those thoughts. I'm just thinking about parents with children, and, and we I, don't hear what I'm not saying. Encourage your children. Tell your daughters they're beautiful. Tell your sons they're handsome, right? Build, build them up, but don't you ever leave off telling them that they, they, without Jesus, they have earned for themselves eternal punishment. You're that bad. God is angry with you because you are in your sins. Now turn to Christ. Right? The Christian faith is one of self-annihilation. It's one of self-repudiating self-esteem.
Here, here's what scripture says about that. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. By nature, just by virtue of descending from Adam, you didn't even have to do anything. You deserve hellfire, right? Just by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. And then verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. He's just pounding this. Not you, not what you did, not what you did. It's not you. You're just filthy. But God, by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You are wretched. God is glorious and gracious. That is the ministry of John the Baptist. He went around saying, you're wretched, right? We could go into the gospel of Luke and look at his sermon to the Pharisees and he's He's pounding them. He's telling them, you're terrible. You think you have, you think you're righteous and you're just completely unrighteous, right? And that was the ministry of John the Baptist and it points toward, and then, and then you hear him crying out, behold, the Lamb of God. That's our next passage. You're a wretch, God is great. That was his ministry. That is the testimony of the church through the ages. That is the testimony of the church. That holds us apart from every secular philosophy, every religion that posits some sort of good or just neutral in man. No, we are terrible. And if I have to prove that to you, you're asleep and dumb and you don't have a thought in your head. Do I have to prove to you that you're wicked? No, not in this church. I hope not. But we, we t- our hearts deceive us, don't they? Our hearts tell us, you're, you're doing well. You're good. Maybe, maybe you are the Messiah, right? Let me close with this from J.C. Ryle's commentary. If we profess to have any real Christianity, let us strive to be of John the Baptist's spirit. Let us study humility. This is the grace which with which all must begin who would be saved. We have no true religion about us until we cast away our high thoughts and feel ourselves sinners. This is the grace which all saints may follow after and which none have any excuse for neglecting. All God's children have not gifts or money or time to work or a wide sphere of usefulness, but all may be humble. 
This is the grace above all which will appear most beautiful in our latter end. Never shall we feel the need of humility so deeply as when we lie on our deathbeds and stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Our whole lives will then appear a catalog of imperfections, ourselves nothing, and Christ all. Amen.